Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. I uh, hope you enjoyed your group time. I hope, uh, how was the ladies' discussion? Is it this? Sweet. Huh? That's great. You know what? I, I put them there and it's you guys get to as many as, as you could get to, you know. Um, a couple of things real quick. Uh, number one, I had mentioned last week about possibly doing a uh, what I used to call a breakfast club once a month meeting for breakfast. And um, we people said they wanted to do it, but last Saturday really wasn't a good day for them. Uh, would this Saturday be a better day? Would anybody be interested in meeting up for breakfast this Saturday? Sweet. So let's do that. We'll plan at uh, 10 o'clock at uh, the Pancake House in Anaheim. I'll send a text message on Friday with all the details. Uh, so that would be great. Uh, looking forward to it. If, uh, yeah. Also, one other announcement. Um, I got the dates and everything settled for next year's Israel trip. So if you're interested in coming to Israel, uh, this is a great opportunity to go at a kind of a discounted rate. Uh, the price is discounted, but uh, the tour in no way is budget. The hotels are phenomenal. The bus is phenomenal. Everything about it is first class. So if you have any questions, I got flyers. You could ask me. Uh, Ryan and Kevin actually went last year. And so if you have any questions, you could ask them about it. But it's July 24th through August 3rd. And uh, yeah, so these are here if you want one. All right, let's uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to actually read uh, our passage from Ephesians 6 and then flip over a few pages and read the parallel passage from Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21. Uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our study that uh, Colossians and Ephesians are kind of parallel books. Paul mentions kind of the same things in both books, uh, just a little bit different. But uh, we'll start in Ephesians 6, and then I'll read Colossians 3. Uh, Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. That was last week's study. This week's children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that it's inerrant, that it is perfect in every way, that it's everything that we need for life and godliness, Lord. So I pray that you would instruct us from it today. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance to walk through this world that is dark, this world that's chaotic, that doesn't honor you. We want to be people that please you. And we know that to do that, we need your word. We need to be obedient to it. We need to hear your voice, Lord. So help us to hear it. Help us to apply it to our lives and help us to live a life that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Uh, kind of the background, right? Uh, kind of like to remind us of where we're at. We have a, someone new who might not know uh, the outline of Ephesians, but uh, we've been studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians for months now. And tonight we find ourselves in the sixth chapter, the, the last chapter of this great book that the apostle penned. And we've learned so far in the first three chapters uh, are extremely theological. In chapters one through three, Paul is telling us about who God is, everything that God's done, so that we can have this amazing inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about God and what he's done for us. And then in chapter four, the, the, shift kind of fo the, the, the focus kind of shifts, right? Now in chapter four, he's telling us how to take these truths that he talked about in chapters one through three and apply them to our lives, how we're to live out uh, in light of what he had said in those first two chapters. In a very real sense, Paul is teaching us how to walk with the Lord. In fact, five times in chapters four and five, he's going to use walk, the Greek word peripateo, as a metaphor for our lifestyle or the way that we conduct our life. Uh, in chapter 518, Paul is going to command us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to give us different evidences that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to say, hey, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to perform these great miracles and you're going to speak in tongues. No, he doesn't say that. I'm joking. Right? That's not the evidences that he mentions. He says, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be joy-filled worshipers. You're going to be giving thanks for all things. You're going to be submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So those are the three evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in these subsequent passages, he's going to go on to explain what that looks like in the home. We often think that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to preach or to lead worship or maybe to go out and witness. And it's true that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things, but that's not where Paul goes in his thinking. And Paul's thinking in, in this letter, he goes straight to the home. He says, hey, the place that you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit the most is in your most intimate relationships, the people that you're around the most. You're going to need it in your home. So this is the spirit-filled home part two, right? We're looking at the home environment and what it looks like being filled with the spirit, the way that that's going to be evidenced in our home life. And this Subject, this section that we're studying of the epistle, it's really difficult. It's really challenging, right? It, it really pulls on our heartstrings because uh, these are the, the relationships that are important to us. You might say that this is kind of where the rubber hits the proverbial road. It's in the home where our faith is the most tested. Uh, these everyday relationships are often the most difficult to honor the Lord with. I think it's very interesting, again, looking at Paul's thinking and, and, and the way that he's going and the way that his letter progresses, that right after talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and talking about the home life, he gets into spiritual warfare in the end of chapter six. And that's because I think that it's in the home, it's in the family where the greatest amount of spiritual warfare is going to take place. Satan is going to attack those relationships the most. 
because that's where he could cause the greatest amount of damage in our lives. And so tonight we're going to continue our study on the home and we get to the parent-child dynamic. You know, the key to this and the sections that we're talking about with the home is found in chapter 5, verse 21. Remember, this is kind of the, the transitional verse that goes from being filled with the Holy Spirit into what that uh, spirit-filled home life looks like. It's like uh, that all hinges on chapter 5, verse 21. And it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. See, in all three of these sets of relationships, there's a mutual submission. There was submission between wives and husbands. The wife was supposed to submit to the husband and his leadership. The husband was supposed to submit to the wife and loving her and caring for her in a way that reflects God's Christ's love for his church. Tonight, we're going to see that parents are supposed to submit to their kids by loving them and nurturing them. And likewise, Kids are supposed to submit to their husband or their parents by obeying and honoring them. And I know in a group like this, the temptation is to think, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't have little kids at home. You know, I'm out of my parents' house. This kind of doesn't really apply to me. I'm going to tune out for the next hour and a half and just kind of play on my phone, check my social media and just, please don't do that. This study is very applicable to us. Uh, first, it applies to us because we're all children and we never outgrow that command to honor our parents. Uh, there's no age limit or expiration date on that throughout our entire life. Even if your parents are in heaven, God is still calling you to honor them in whatever way you can. Number two, hopefully that we'll all have kids one day, right? And, and start. my encouragement would be to start being the type of parents that you would want your kids to have. Right? Start being the type of person you would want your parent, your kid one day to have as a parent. And I, number three, I would say that this, that yes, it primarily applies to parents and to little kids, but God has ordained that wherever his graces or that are deficient for the, the church to make up for that. So, so there's kids that are missing some of this in their lives. And we, as the body of Christ, the family of God, have the opportunity to make up for what is lacking there and be that blessing in that child's life. God wants you to be a part of the solution. 80% of black kids grow up in a single parent home. 60% of Hispanic kids grow up in a single parent home. And 50% of white kids grow up in a single parent home. Right? So, so the need is incredible. We look around and there's all kinds of children everywhere who aren't getting this blessing that God wants them to have in their life. And he wants me and you to be a part of the solution, to share God's truth with them, to encourage them, to point them in the way that they should go, to help them realize that they are created by God in the image of God and they're infinitely valuable to God. They're not hearing that message often. And God wants you to be a part of them hearing it. Number four, this study is uh, applicable to each one of us because we should all be play, praying about the families around us. We want there to be strong families because the society is only going to be as good as the family is going to be. And we need to be praying for families. And the number one way we could pray for them are through their marriages and through the relationships between parents and their children. So this is going to instruct us on how to be better prayer warriors 
for the church, for the community, and yeah, for, for all different things. I've, I suppose getting started here, it would do us good to kind of get a view of the way that God views children. There's all kinds of passages we could go to, but a few of them. Isaiah 1, or Psalms 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So God's saying, hey, kids are a gift. They're a blessing from me to you. You need to see them that way. Our, our society really doesn't. I see more and more young people who are married who said, no matter what, we're not having kids. You know, we want to chase our goals. We want to have our fun. As if kids are a blessing, that they're not a gift from the Lord. Matthew nineteen fourteen. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In Ezekiel, God is confronting the children of Israel for allowing their children to be sacrificed to Molech. And he says this in Ezekiel 16, 22, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. In a sense, God sees all children as his children. So these children, yeah, God's entrusted you with them for a time, but ultimately they belong to God. They're God's children. And the way we treat them in a way is the way that we're going to treat God. In my studies this week, there was this story that was kind of eye-opening to me. It really was. And I think it'll do us good as a warning. It'll do the parents here as a good warning, but it'll also be a warning to us potential parents one day. Uh, this pastor writes this, I will never forget a story my friend Dr. Chuck Corals shared at a pastor's conference a few years ago while expounding Colossians 3, 18 through 21. A well-known biblical scholar invited Dr. Corals to lunch one time. Dr. Corals told this scholar he was extremely inspired by his productivity as a thinker and a writer. And he went on to ask, I'm amazed at your work. How do you manage to be so prolific? The theological heavyweight mumbled under his breath, I sacrificed my son. I was stunned by his words, Dr. Coral said. He thought he misunderstood him. So he asked again, what did you say? The scholar replied almost angrily, you heard me. I sacrificed my son. Dr. Coral said the scholar added that he had been so driven to research, write, publish, and make a name for himself in the academic world that he neglected his family. His son essentially grew up as a stranger to his father. Now as an adult, his son was a homeless man sleeping on the streets. Dr. Corals tried to comfort him. I'm sure that's not your fault. Even more angrily, the scholar replied, don't you try to console me? Yes, I did that. Even though people seem to be amazed by my productivity as a scholar, the fact is I would give up every one of those books and far, far more just to have my son back. Then the prolific writer looked across the table straight into the eyes of Dr. Coral and said, just in case you want to walk in my footsteps, know that I prayed to God, you won't. 
this conversation echoed in Dr. Coral's mind for the next few weeks. He was so haunted by it that he began to take a close look at his own life as a husband and a father. Dr. Coral said, I was blowing it. That conversation led him to consider his own priorities and adjust his lifestyle. It ultimately led him to make a change in his ministry roles and a change in his place of ministry. Dr. Coral said, I have never once regretted that radical change. You know, when I was going through the, the pastor school, which it took over for the school of ministry in Costa Mesa, uh, one of the things we got to do was we got to meet with Brian Broderson and ask him questions. And now there was kids going through, guys going through the school with me that were involved in youth ministry and that. And so they would ask questions about youth ministry. And, you know, and oftentimes youth ministry is kind of like, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, not a big deal to the senior pastor. It's just kind of tucked away and, hey, out of sight, out of mind type of deal. Don't do anything stupid to get us in trouble. And uh, one of my friends, one of the other students asked Brian about, uh, how Chuck used to go to all of the youth stuff. He was at every youth retreat, every youth event, every event going on at the church, Chuck was there and he thought this was great. And, and he was like, yeah, you know, don't you think more senior pastors should be like Chuck and, and, and be at everything for the youth and all of that? And Brian said, yeah, in some way I could see how that's encouraging to the youth. But he said this, he said, Chuck Jr. would answer it this way. I, I, I don't know. My dad might have been at all those things. I know this. My dad was never at once one of my Little League games. You see, I, I love Chuck, and one day I can't wait to meet him in person in heaven. But I think that we should be able to learn from the good things he's done and the ways that he's made mistakes. And I'm sure that if Chuck could come back and hear that again, he wouldn't have prioritized every single youth retreat over his own son's events. You see, the reality is, as parents, you only get one shot at it. It's not like you can say, oh, we screwed that one up. Better luck next time. Similarly, as we as kids, we only really get one shot at honoring our parents. Right? We need to make the most of them. We need God's instruction. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit if we're going to have any uh, hope at being effective in this. And this is exactly what Paul is going to teach us to do tonight. So for point number one, fill in the word together. Families need to worship together. Ephesians 6.1 says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice how Paul doesn't say, parents, go tell your children to obey you in the Lord. No, Paul is assuming that the children are there with the parents hearing the, this letter being read to the church in Ephesus that they're all together at this church service. It's not like there was one letter written for the adults at the church of Ephesus and another letter written for the adventure kids at the church of Ephesus. No, there was one letter for both of them. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's wrong for there to be a, a specific place in the church for kids to worship in a way that they could understand and in a way that's more applicable to their development. However, I do think it's very, very important that families find ways to worship God together. You know, during COVID, there's this band I like uh, called the Gettys. And during COVID, they would do this called, thing called Family Hymn Sing. And it would get the whole family together and, and they would sing hymns and record it and post it online. And it was great. It was so encouraging to see 
these professional musicians singing, but they're little kids. They're singing with them. And this whole family just worshiping the Lord together. I saw someone from our church, one of our, uh, the minor family, did the same thing and posted it online. And it was just so encouraging to see families worshiping and serving together. Family Bible reading should be a norm. You might say it's just too difficult for my kids to understand. You know, I read it and it's just, I, I, they can't get it. Might I remind you that this letter of Ephesians was read to the entire church and the beginning of it starts talking about things like election and predestination and uh, propitiation and redemption and adoption and all these shuns that are really big theological words that kids aren't going to understand. But Paul expected it to be read to a church full of kids. You see, I think sometimes the kids have a hard time with these things later in life because they never heard them as kids. I talk to people all the time who think of the idea of God's sovereignty and election as just being unfair and cruel and, and just weird because they had decades upon decades of just being indoctrinated into the world's thinking and they never heard these truths as children. The best place to hit it in your mind is as a child. So families, they need to be reading the word of God together. Families also need to find ways to serve together. Right? They, they, they need to serve. Parents, children need to see their parents serving. There's something that happens when people are serving together. It brings them closer together. I love Bless Fest for this reason, because families get to serve together. The bottom line is children need to worship with their parents. They need to study the Bible with their parents. They need to serve with their parents because their parent is their number one role model in their life, and they need to see them doing it. Children also need to be in church. I think this just presupposes that these kids are in church. Parents, you only have a short amount of time to show your children the value or the way that you value spiritual things. If you're telling them, hey, you know what? Your ball game is more important than church. We're going to prioritize it this week. What kind of message is that sending them? Don't let ball become ball in your home. Right? We may think that, hey, by acquiescing to our, 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 our kids' uh, activities is loving them. But when it comes to church, it's actually the opposite. All you're really doing is teaching them to worship idols. I know, I know some of you are going to say, hey, but this travel ball coach says the only way my kid's going to get a scholarship or the only way he's going to play beyond that is being on this travel ball team that happens to play on Sundays. And I'll say that's a lie. And my evidence will be Derek Carr, the starting quarterback for the Raiders. His parents would never let him play sports on Sunday. It was a day set aside for the Lord. They would go to church. And guess what? He's still got a scholarship. He's playing in the NFL. He's earning $25 million a year. And more importantly than that, he's using this platform that God gave him for the Lord. He's witnessing. He's using the money, the, the, the unrighteous mammon that the Lord has given him to bring people into the kingdom of God. By taking that away from your kids, you are not helping them. Joshua 24, 15 says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? Families need to worship together. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see uh, God's instruction for the spirit-filled child. Uh, Paul's going to first focus on the child, so fill in the word child. Number one, the spirit-filled child obeys their parents. So you fill in the word obeys as well. 
verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In our text, we're going to see really three reasons that children should obey their parents. The first one, it says, is because it's right. It's just natural. It's the natural thing for do, to do for parent, children to obey their parents. In the first century pagan Rome, it, it, it was even, you know, children would obey their parents. The Romans knew that a society that was filled with rebellious children was a society that wouldn't last. Secondly, the reason children should obey their parents is because it is written. Paul quotes Exodus 20, verse 12, commanding children to honor their parents. That same commandment is restated five times in the New Testament. And so the first reason children should obey their parents is just the natural, the right thing to do. Secondly, because it is written, because God has revealed that children need to obey their parents. Thirdly, because it is gospel. Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. He's not saying, hey, obey your Christian parents. If they're non-Christians, you don't have to obey them. Or obey your parents when they're acting like Christians. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, hey, obey your parents in the Lord. It's, it's like, o -o -o obey your parents as you're obeying the Lord. Part of your Christian service is to obey your parents. Now, I'm not saying that we need to obey our parents when they're telling us to do something that's contrary to God's word. Then we must quote the apostles and say we must obey God rather than man. But how often is that really the case? You see, the truth is when you're obeying your parents, you're really obeying the Lord because the Lord put that authority in your life to test your obedience. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. No matter what it is, you need to be obedient. And it's interesting to me that Paul uses the word children here. You know, first century Roman culture would have used boys, be obedient to your fathers, because they didn't value children, especially little girls, very much. This word children is the Greek word technon, and it's a word that doesn't so much emphasize uh, age, but location. You see, uh, Paul is writing this to people who are still under their father's headship, right? Last time we were together, we talked about marriage. And in verse 31 of chapter 5, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, the man leaves the headship of his father and mother, of his parents, and joins with his wife, and that forms a new union. At that point, he is no longer obligated to be obedient to his parents. He still has to honor them, but now he has a new family where he's the head of that'll have parents that need to obey him. So it doesn't matter if you're 3, 23, 33, or 53. If you're still single and under the headship of your father, you need to obey your parents. This is especially true if you're living under their roof. This word obey is an interesting word as well. It's the Greek word translated, uh, translated obey is hupaku, which speaks of a soldier about to engage in battle, carefully taking orders or instructions from his commanding officer. The idea is if, if you don't listen, if you don't get these right, you're going to go out and you're going to die. You're going to get killed. 
You need <laughs> to listen. The scriptural command to obey one parent doesn't call for a yeah, yeah, I know kind of response. No, it calls for one to obey them as if their life depended upon it. Imagine it's the Super Bowl and it's a you're down by one point, it's a minute left, and you got the ball and you're driving down the field and you're in the huddle and you're listening to the quarterback give instructions for the play. And the entire season, the Super Bowl relies upon this drive. That's the kind of attention God wants children to have in listening to and obeying their parents. Last week, many of you know, I had this big seizure on Monday. It caused me to fall in the street and get hurt. My original plan was to wait and go get checked out by the doctors on Wednesday. Right? That way I could be here sharing this message with you guys on Tuesday. But my mom wanted me to get checked out as soon as possible. She wanted me to go to the doctor's, the emergency room that night. I mean, she's a good mom, right? And, and I was like, yeah, 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 I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to do it Wednesday. And then it was like it dawned on me. I was like, I'm teaching this passage about obeying your parents, and I'm disobeying my parent about this. I need to go and get this checked out. And it was very important to God that children obeyed their parents. So important that God's law said that if a child struck his parents physically or was continually disobedient and rebellious to him, that they would get the death penalty. God would have them stoned and executed for disobeying their parents' authority. Why so harsh, right? That seems a little harsh, like you rebel against your kids and you get stoned to death. Well, I have a couple of reasons, I think, that God was so harsh in this kind of penalty. The first one was because the relationship between a parent and a child, a child's obedience to the parent was to display the holiness of God. It was one of the ways that God was going to show that his people were distinct from the rest of the world. Leviticus 19, 1 through 3 says this. Remember, this is them going into the land. They're in the land and God is saying, hey, when you go in the land, don't act like the the Canaanites who were in the land before. You're going to be holy. You're going to look different than they did. He says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his father and his mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Moses is going to go on to give other evidences or other ways that they're to be separate or holy from the people around them. But it's interesting to me that at the top of that list, it's reverence your parents. Reverence your parents. That's the number one way that you're going to be holy to the Lord. The main reason, though, I believe God's penalty for rebellion against parents was so harsh is because children, if they can't get that authority down and submit to their parents while they're in their home, they're going to have a really hard time with other authorities later in life. I have friends that, or people that I know, friends of friends, acquaintances, that just kind of let their kids do whatever they want. They don't discipline their kids. And these kids grow up and they end up disobeying the government's authority and end up in prison. One person in particularly uh, didn't discipline their kids. Kids ended up going to prison. But beyond that, they could never see the authority of, of the church and the message behind the church. And that person rebelled against the gospel message and was killed and now most likely is in hell. 
You see, God's authorities are there for our good. They're, they're these headships that God has placed over us for our good and for our joy and for his glory. And if we discipline or dis, be a disobedient to one, it's going to spill into the next. And we're going to have a hard time obeying all of them. And it's going to end up bringing great harm into our life. And notice how the consequences for disciplining God's authorities increases. You disagree or disobey mom and dad, you might get the belt, you might get grounded, you might get booted out of the house. You disobey the government, you might end up in prison. You disobey the church and the gospel message, it could land you in hell. So it's best that we get this authority thing down from the get-go, right? When we're in the home, that children get authority down to start with. The Ten Commandments are interesting to me. They really are, right? Uh, uh, we know there's 10 of them, right? And we know that the first four have to do with God's, man's relationship to God, right? The way that we relate to, to, we relate to God. The second six, though, relate to, with man's relationship with each other. And so the, the question is, is how are these broken up, these two tablets, right? And one group says, hey, there's four on one tablet and there's six commandments on the other tablet. You know, that's, that's one way of looking at it. I think it's wrong. Uh, others say, the rabbis say this, that it was five and five. And they say that the fifth commandment, the one, honor your father and mother, uh, it belonged with the first four because parents are the first introduction a child has to the love of God and to the word of God, right? In a sense, to the child, the parent represented God, and to obey your parent was tantamount to obeying God. Uh, number two, fill in this word. Uh, the spirit-filled child honors their parents. So fill in the word honors. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3 says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The command in verse 1 is to obey your parents. Now in verse 2, we have the why, the heart condition behind verse 1. You know, it's entirely possible to obey your parents and not honor them. Right? You could honor, you could obey something without honoring it. Now, I might confess that there's uh, some difficulty here. I have a difficult time understanding what Paul is saying here when he says this is the first commandment with a promise. Peter in, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter says that this guy Paul, sometimes he writes things that are difficult to understand. And I think that this is one of them. And the reason I say that is because if you were to go to Exodus 20 and read through the Decalogue, it sure sounds like the third commandment has a promise attached to it as well. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what, that, of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So I don't know. Maybe he's interpreting this, showing loving kindness 
and to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, not as a promise, but more as uh, generally speaking of God's character. I don't know, but the important thing is, is that there is a promise here. And Paul's going to combine two verses in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, 12, and Deuteronomy 15, or 5, 16, when he says, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Right Now, in the Old Testament context, uh, we need to remember that Israel was a little bit different than we are, right? Because Israel was a nation for God. It was a, a national entity, but it was also a spiritual entity. It was, it was a church at the same time. And God, for Israel, would reward covenant faithfulness with protection and with provision and with uh, health and blessing and things like that. Right? And so when we read the Old Testament, it's often easy to read verses and kind of think, hey, that sounds kind of like a prosperity verse to me. Right? But Paul's going to combine these and apply them to the church. And it's not really a blanket promise. Of course, there's kids who grow up in good Christian homes that rebel and abandon the faith. Or there's people who are completely faithful. And at the age of 23, they're killed like Jim Elliott was. So it's not necessarily a blanket promise that your years will be lengthened, you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Paul wasn't that type of prosperity preacher. I think the idea behind it isn't so much that our years will be lengthened, but we'll have more life to our years. The idea is, is that, hey, you'll, have, you'll live a spiritually vibrant life. In the years that God has allotted for you, you'll get the most out of them. You'll experience the most of God's blessings possible in those years if you honor your father and mother. I remember uh, right after I lost my arm, when I walk around and I'm around kids, kids kind of look at me and they get all kind of, whoa, what's going on? Why does that only have one arm, you know? And I remember the first time I encountered that with a kid, I was walking into the grocery store by my house and these kids are just like, what's up with that guy, you know? And the kid walks up and he's like, what happened to your arm? And the mom's just like totally embarrassed, you know? And the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, I don't know. I just went to bed that one night and I woke up like this. And I was like, man, that is like the worst thing to say. That poor mom, she's never going to get those kids to go to bed again. Like, you know, I got to think of something better to say. And so now when kids ask me, what happened to your arm? I tell them this. I say, I didn't listen to my mom. You see, and that's 100% true. Because my mom kept telling me over and over, if you keep doing that, you're going to get hurt. You keep doing that, you're going to get hurt. It's not going to be good for you. See, if I would have just listened to my mom years and years ago, I wouldn't have had to go through all that I went through, losing my arm and be where I'm at with one arm. You see, my mom loved me more than probably anybody on the planet. She wanted what's best for me more than anybody on the planet. And at the time, she had way more wisdom than I did. And she wanted to give it to me. But I was like, eh, you don't know what you're talking about, Mom. It's kind of a picture of us and God, right? God loves us more than anybody. He's infinitely more wise than us. We know that he has a good plan for us. So we submit to him and we obey him. Well, our parents are a picture of that as well. And we need to obey them. What if I know more than my parents? What if I'm more of an expert in a subject than my parents are? Do I still need to obey them? Might I remind you that Jesus obeyed and honored his parents? 
Jesus, the one who's omni, he, he has all the wisdom in the world. He's omnisapient. He's omniscient. He knows everything from the end, from the beginning. Yet he still submitted himself under his parents. Luke 2.51 says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. So how do we honor our parents? What are some ways we can honor our parents? Number one, by obeying them. That's one way to honor them. Number two is spending time with them. You know, wanting to be, have them in our lives. You know, continually wanting to, to be with them. You know, recently I realized that I was having a hard time connecting with my dad and spending time with my dad. And we both like football. We both like watching it. So I went and bought this new TV so me and my dad could watch football together. And it's been such a joy to be able to watch the games with him and spend time with him and, and kind of reconnect with him in ways that we hadn't before. Another way to honoring your parents, especially in old age, is, is by caring for them. In Matthew 15, I'm not going to read the verses. Jesus is, is going to make that connection. He's going to say, hey, you know, part of honoring your parents is, is taking care of them financially when they get old. But you guys, this tradition says, hey, I could say that this money's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. And so I don't have to use it for honoring my parents. And he's going to say, hey, your, your traditions, you know, contradict the word of God. And so one of the ways we could honor our parents is by taking care of them when they get old. You see, this is kind of a reciprocal cycle. Right When you have kids, you pour into them, you teach them of the Lord, you raise them in the right way, and then they grow up. And then when you need someone to care for you, they take care of you because you've, you've taught them the ways of the Lord. In verse 4, we're going to see God's instruction for the spirit-filled parents. So phone the word parents. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the word Lord. This word fathers is the Greek word paters. Uh, most often means fathers, but in Hebrews 11.23, the author of Hebrews uses it to speak of both of Moses's parents. So it's totally appropriate to apply this verse to both fathers and mothers. I do think it's interesting, though, that the text says fathers. You see, the father's role is an important role in the home. And it's the most absent one. All this talk today about the problems in our society, and especially certain communities are facing, a lot of people are attributing it to the absence of fathers in the homes. See, the, the, the father has a very, very important role, and it's often neglected. You know, there was this uh, kind of a bring your dad to school day, or and, and kids were getting up and telling about what their kid that their fathers did and one kid gets up and he says my dad's the president of the company he travels all over the world the next kid gets up and he says my dad is super rich he said we have nice cars we have a pool we even have our own private jet another kid gets up and he says my dad's a professional baseball player and the teachers and the kids they're all impressed with these stories and this little girl gets up and she says my dad is here. <laughs> and that was a shock. The number one thing you could be for your kids is just being there. 
under number one, avoid provoking and discouraging your child. Provoking and discouraging are your feelings. Our parallel passage, Paul says this in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart or become discouraged. Right? If we exasperate our kids, they're going to become discouraged. Now, there's many ways that a parent could provoke their kid to anger or discouragement. And here's some of the possible causes of angering our children that I came up with. Number one is failing to take into account that they're kids, demanding more for them than their age would be appropriate. Comparing them to others. Yeah. And why can't you be more like John? Kind of deal. We're disciplining them inconsistently. You know, one day this is wrong and the next day it's not. Right? That's going to be frustrating when you actually do discipline them. Failing to express approval, even at small accomplishments. If everything is just negative and negative and negative, you're going to discourage your kids. They need to be encouraged. They need to hear a good job. Failing, failing to express or our love to them, right? If kids aren't constantly reminded that you love them, that you care about them, that they're important to you, they're going to become discouraged. Disciplining them for reasons other than willful disobedience and defiance, right? If, they, if there's an accident, they drop the milk and spill it, right? And you spank them or yell at them, right? That's not their fault. There's no point in, in punishing them for that. That's one way you're going to get your kid really discouraged really fast. Pressuring them to pursue our goals, not their own. How many parents are there today that are trying to make their kids live out their dreams that were unaccomplished. I see it all the time, especially in sports. You're going to play that sport because I played that sport is the idea. Withdrawing love from them or overprotecting them, right? Being overprotective is just as bad as not loving them and not caring for them as far as discouraging them. And in Pauline's typical fashion, it's not enough to stop the bad behavior, but we must replace it with good behavior. So he's going to say, stop provoking your kids to wrath and discouragement. Instead, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Right? So number two, the spirit-filled parent does, and he does three things in our text. The first one is nurture. So I found the word nurture. This phrase, bring them up in the NASB, is the same Greek word that we saw in chapter 5, verse 29, where it says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Last time I talked about this, I talked about how I have a bad back. And at the time, my back was acting up. And I would go through great lengths to make sure that I didn't do anything to aggravate my sciatic nerve. Right? I would lay in certain positions. I even went and bought a seat cushion so it would help it. And anything I knew that would get me in a position that would aggravate it and make me uncomfortable, I avoided like the plague. Parents, you need to know your kids inside out. 
You need to know their strengths and their vulnerabilities. You need to make sure to protect them where vulnerable and give them opportunities to thrive in their strengths. But this is what nurturing, this is what caring for them is. There's different areas we need to be attentive to regarding our children's growth and vulnerability, right? And I think there's at least four of them that we see in scriptures. And I think Jesus is a great example of this. In Luke 2, 51 and 52, it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew in mentally. Children are born with a blank slate. They know absolutely nothing. They need to be taught. They need to grow in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew physically. Parents, we need to make sure that our kids are growing up healthy, that they're strong, that they have what they need so that they could physically be strong and healthy. He grew in favor with God. He grew in his spirituality. Right, parents, you need to focus on making sure that your kids are growing in the Lord, that they know the Lord, that their knowledge of the Bible is increasing, that their love for God is increasing. Fourth, he grew in favor with man. He grew socially. And we need to make sure that kids are growing in the social sphere, that they're making friendships that are healthy, that they're getting along with people in a way that's productive and not harmful. I think parents would do well to make sure their kid is maturing in these four areas. Proverbs 22.6 is the classic verse on this, right? Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Notice how it doesn't say train up a child in the way that you think he should go. Just train up a child in the way that he should go. But we need to study our kids, understand what's best for our kids, and train them up in that, right? Not necessarily in what's best for us or the things that we like. Secondly, we need to discipline our kids. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word discipline, it speaks of punishment for wrongdoing. Proverbs is instructional on this. Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And not just disciplines him, disciplines him diligently. Proverbs twenty two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Right? They're born foolish. They're born stubborn. They're born selfish. Discipline is what's going to get that out of them. I know people who don't discipline their kids thinking it's loving. They say spanking is cruel, grounding your kids is cruel. You know what I think is cruel? Not disciplining your kids. You're withholding a means of God's grace from them. One study of juvenile delinquency came to this conclusion. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and totally self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these things and he cease with the rage and aggressiveness that would be murderous were he not so helpless. 
He's dirty. He has no morals. He has no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue on their own self-centered world of infancy, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a rapist, or a killer. Here's a study uh, from Harvard University sociologists Sheldon and Eleanor Gluick developed a test that proved to be 90% accurate to determine whether or not five or six-year-olds would become delinquent. They discovered that the four primary factors necessary to prevent delinquency are a father's firm, fair, consistent discipline, mother's supervision and companionship during the day, the parents demonstrated affection for each other and for the children, and the family spending time together in activities where all participated. This was a study conducted by Harvard in the 1950s, but I think it is absolutely true today as well. In the Bible, we see God expressing his love in five different ways. And the fifth way that he expresses his love in the Bible is by chastising or disciplining his children. The Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 says this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is expressed or addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and when we respected them, uh, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of all spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God, Paul, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God shows us that he loves us by disciplining us, right? So to not discipline your child would be completely incompatible with the heart of God, the character of God. If God demonstrates he loves us by disciplining us, how much more so should a human father demonstrate his love for his child by disciplining them? Thirdly, uh, the father teaches it says in verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction or teaching of the Lord. This is simply explaining truth. However, it goes beyond memorizing facts. It gets to the heart. It gets to the why behind why we're doing something. In short, it, it, it teaches about God and how to walk with him. Parents, you need to be telling your kids about God and who God is at every opportunity you can. This is how it was presented to the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy. It says in chapter 6, it says in verse 6, these words 
the law, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up pretty much all the time. You shall bind them as a signet on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we should be teaching our kids about God every opportunity possible. So we need to take the things that are happening in the world, in their life, and help them to see that God is over them and God has a purpose for them and the way that God thinks about them. This world isn't going to teach them that. Right? But they need to understand that. They need to understand that God's work is, word isn't just a book that we memorize and know, but it affects every aspect of our everyday life. And the only way that they're going to get that is if parents are showing them that. Notice how it's fathers or parents teach your kids. It's not bring them to the church and have the youth pastor teach them. No, God ordained for parents to be the primary teachers. You know, up until about 60 years ago, there was no such thing as a youth pastor. There really wasn't. It was parents. The father was the youth pastor. And they would come to church and they would sit together in church and they would go home. And if the kid was going to learn anything about God outside of that, it was going to be through his parents, through his father. Now imagine if the spiritual well-being of children depended upon their father's knowledge of the Bible. You might say today that wouldn't work very well. You might think today that these kids would be in real danger. And that would probably be true because most of the world is biblically illiterate. But maybe young men don't know the Bible today because they're not being forced to learn it to teach their kids. If they had that responsibility of being their kid's primary Bible teacher, that might encourage them to start learning the word themselves. You see, because we neglect that and we say, hey, we're going to compartmentalize and say, hey, you know, the church is where kids learn about this and this is where my kids get their exercise. This is where, and we uh, co-sign our parenting out all over the place. It affects them. It affects us. It affects all of society. You know, I can't wait to meet the parents of these four Hebrew men, Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I mean, these guys are just, unbelievable to me. They really are. At 14, they were taken from their, their home. They were taken from their family. They were taken from their church. They were taken from their community. And they were exported all the way to Babylon. And they were submerged in pagan Babylon. And, and to go beyond that, they took the smartest, most communicative people in Babylon and used them to indoctrinate those kids for three years into everything paganism. Everything Babylonian thought. But you know what? Those four Hebrew men kept honoring the Lord. They kept walking with the Lord. They kept living in faith. You know why? Because their parents did such a good job of teaching them the truth. They weren't going to buy a lie. They knew who the God who created the universe was. You think they're going to be like, oh, yeah, let's worship the stars. That's kind of cool. No, they knew the one who made the stars. They weren't going to fall for that. And if parents are teaching their kids the truth and pouring truth into their kids, they don't need to worry about this worldly teaching and the things that are being taught on YouTube or in the schools or things like that. No, because those kids are then going to filter everything through the truth that they've already been taught. 
And if Daniel, Ananiah, Ezariah, Mishael are able to learn that by 14 years of age, children today could do the same. I want to end with a kind of a word of hope. I know uh, this is kind of a discouraging thing, you know, and I think, you know, parents uh, kind of feel inadequate in a lot of ways. And, and largely, I think God gives people, parent, children, to show them that they're inadequate to teach in any kind of spiritual fashion. But one pastor said this, and I thought it would be a good way to close. Finally, in your communication and education, you may feel insufficient. You are right. Parenting makes you desperate for God's help. Some days I think success equals keeping my kids out of prison. Other days I think success is keeping myself out of prison. But we take great comfort in Titus 2. Paul says the grace of God instructs us for godliness. While parents have this responsibility to train their children, God in his grace is working in their lives. Look to God for grace and strength. The psalmist reminds us of our desperate need. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays alert in vain. Elise Fitzpatrick quips. The obvious difference between Paul and us is that Paul bragged about his weaknesses and we try to hide it. Do not hide your weaknesses. Admit them. Go to God for help. His strength will be sufficient. Weak parents have a mighty Savior. And to that I say, amen. So, Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your instruction. I pray that you would show us how you want us to apply that to our lives this week, Lord. We want to hear from you. You say that your sheep hear your voice and follow it, Lord. And we want to do that. We want to hear from you. We want to follow you. We trust that you're going to lead us into passive righteousness and into the still waters, Lord, that you're going to restore our soul. All those things that the good shepherd does, Lord. But we need to hear from you. This world is confusing. It's chaotic. It's got traps and problems all over the place. And if we're going to walk through it by faith in a way that honors you, we need your direction. So help us to hear your voice. Help us to obey it, Lord and help us to honor you. I pray next week we'll have just a plethora of praise reports of people that you put in front of us or people you put in our hearts to pray for and to minister to, Lord, and that would be opening up to receiving your gospel and the truth of who Jesus is, Lord. So I pray that you would open those doors for us to share the gospel with those that you've put around us. I thank you for everyone that's here. I pray that you just be with them, protect them, bless them, be their God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well